I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Sam Frazier of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft joins us to discuss the Biden administration's recent nomination of Elliot Abrams to the United States Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. For those not familiar with Abrams, he's quite a controversial character having been involved in the Iran-Contra affair. But the controversies don't end there, as you'll learn in the conversation to follow. Why are figures like Abrams still floating around within the foreign policy establishment? That's one of the main questions we'll be hoping to answer in this conversation. And with that in mind, let's get right to it with Sam Frazier. Welcome to Parallax Views Guest. I'm very happy to be speaking with. He is a researcher and senior communications associate at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, uh, one of our favorite organizations uh, on this show. We we love talking to anyone from Quincy because they're doing great work when it comes to foreign policy and sort of pushing back on the uh, foreign policy blob, so to speak. So, uh, Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. So, Sam, the reason I wanted to have you on the show was uh, you have an article in the Responsible Statecraft webzine uh, entitled Biden's Disgraceful Nomination of Elliot Abrams. And I guess uh, Abrams uh, has a long history that we'll get into here, uh, but somehow he has found his way back into the headlines. And uh, what uh, his nomination is for the uh, United States Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy, correct? Yes, that's correct. Abrams, uh, 
there's there's a bit of of deja vu to this moment because um exactly uh about february 2019 uh abrams had a a, a hearing uh, as part of his role um as the trump administration's quote unquote special envoy for venezuela in which he was challenged by ilhan omar on his his past record um and essentially a, a very similar news cycle ensued from there and we can get into that but but this moment uh, stemming from his most recent nomination feels very much like a retread of what we went through back then well let's talk about that so omar confronted him over his complicity with uh human rights abuses so uh maybe we could go over that incident it had to do with um his 1991 guilty plea correct Yes, Omar specifically called him out for having lied to Congress over the Iran-Contra affair um, and essentially covering up the uh, Reagan administration's very active role in funding and supplying the Contras. Um, and she she brought that up to make the point that uh, a man who has already been convicted uh, of lying to Congress over foreign policy issues um, should not be trusted to tell the truth in his current role. Uh, in addition to that, she brought up um, the massacre at El Mazote, uh, which was carried out, I believe, in 1981 by U.S.-backed forces in El Salvador. Uh, it was a government special forces battalion called the Atlacatl Battalion, uh, which was received special U.S. training and... Um, ended up being notorious even for El Salvador's abusive army for its horrible atrocities. But in this massacre, almost a thousand um, Salvadoran civilians, villagers were killed, um, women, children, uh, mass rapes were carried out by these forces. It was truly about as horrendous as it gets in warfare. Um, and Abrams, at least in in the comments that Omar highlighted, um, he dismissed this as communist propaganda, essentially, claimed that the massacre was invented or greatly exaggerated by Salvadoran leftist guerrillas. Um, and she specifically framed this with his comments where he later described U.S. policy towards El Salvador in the 80s as a fabulous achievement and asked him if he considered this massacre to be part of that fabulous achievement. He basically did not answer the question substantively at all, called the line of questioning ridiculous, just, just um, was offended and outraged to even have these things brought up. And the um, members of the foreign policy elite who chose to chime in in this moment largely agreed with abrams uh and came to his defense right and we're, we're talking uh, bipartisan here you know democrats and republicans yeah yeah it was really shocking um at the time because it felt like one of those things where if you're you know you're a liberal foreign policy person um you know even someone who's worked with abrams and may may like him personally um why you would think that it's a good idea to jump in publicly and say uh, this is off limits to talk about essentially or or that 
um, you know, it's it, it's very ridiculous kind of um, very naive sounding defenses that people like Nicholas Burns, uh, who's now the ambassador to China for the Biden administration, you know, coming out and saying it's time to build bridges and not tear each other down. Um, you know, we should see the best in people. Just this very like empty, feel good kind of stuff that, you know, you can never imagine seeing these sorts of defenses uh, marshaled on behalf of someone who is accused of common crimes. Right. This is this is the kind of rhetoric that's trotted out specifically for members of the political elite who carry out crimes, no matter how terrible they really are in the course of their government duties. Yeah, it's interesting. You have a bunch of sort of neoconservative intellectual types that defend Abrams, but also uh, people like um, Kelly Maximin uh, from mm -hmm. the National Security and International Policy uh, at the Center for American Progress, which, I mean, that's considered a pretty liberal organization. And uh, it, it was surprising just reading about her sort of comments on it where she said, well, you know, he made professional mistakes, some very serious professional mistakes, and he was held accountable. Why Why can't we move on? Uh, it's just bizarre seeing these figures. And also, I guess um, she's the chief of staff to uh, Lloyd Austin, the secretary of defense. Yeah, it's really her her statement I found to be the most remarkable of the handful of liberal or center left uh, folks who chose to chime in in that moment. Um, she leads with saying that she worked for Abrams, that he was a great friend and mentor um, in her time at the State Department, uh, that he was nonpartisan and, and all this. Uh, and then what you said, that he made mistakes and was held accountable, which is highly debatable, and we can get into that more. Um, but then that we have a lot of work to do in Venezuela and that we, quote, uh, share goals, which um, it's I mean, really, in, in that moment, sounds like a full throated embrace of whatever the Trump administration uh, was going to do in Venezuela, which, as we know, uh, turned out to be really kind of ham fisted regime change efforts. Um, that failed badly. So it, it's it's really a remarkable thing for a Democrat to want to put their stamp of approval on. So I want to get into Abrams' background, but um, what what is this United States Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy? Because I guess some people would say, oh, well, you know, this appointment, it's kind of symbolic. It's not going to give him real power. But but if that's the case, why do you think uh, we should be talking about it, even, even if it is like a symbolic appointment? So the advisory commission is essentially um, a group of largely former national security officials or prominent business people who have some kind of international background um, who are nominated by whoever is in the White House at the time. Um, and they stress to say this is done in consultation with the opposite party leadership because it is a statutorily bipartisan commission. No more than four of its members can be from one party. Uh, so if you're a Democrat, that means uh, because of the way they are likely to take that rule, you need three Republicans on that commission and you get the input of 
uh, party leadership, which is what a White House spokesman implied happened here, though they did not outright blame this appointment on Republicans. They said, we always consult with Republican leadership on this. And we gave, we picked names that they gave us. And in essence, is is the implication. Um, you know, to me, that still calls into question why they would simply accept a name like Abrams if they're choosing it from a number of names they were given. Uh, if they pushed back on it at all, none of that is is clear or covered by their statement. And I and I. For that reason, as I said in the article, I'm not inclined to give them much benefit of the doubt this, that this is something that was just forced on them by Republicans. But the the commission is supposed to advise um, the State Department on its public diplomacy efforts. Um, public diplomacy, you might say, is um, a sort of friendly way of saying propaganda. Um, not to say that every public diplomacy thing that um, the State Department does through organizations like uh, USAGM or, or the other sort of informational focused um, sort of bureaus of the State Department. It's not all, you know, that they're lying or manipulating information, but they're working to shape pro-U.S. narratives among publics abroad. Um, and so... This is what the commission is is looking at, advising on that work, issuing reports. It is not a position of direct power over policy. It um, you know, gives one a voice to comment on policy, advise on future policy. But why it matters um, in a long-winded way of getting to that, it really any position that Elliot Abrams, uh, is given in the U.S. government is a travesty, essentially. Um, with a career like his, he really should not be eligible for any kind of public role, no matter how insignificant, no matter how symbolic, and especially coming from a Democrat, because he's had plenty, um, you know, as as we said, as recently as the Trump administration has been brought back into government by Republicans, but this is just yet another way of uh, giving sort of bipartisan approval to his long and sordid career and essentially saying that that's what's what he did, especially in his time under the Reagan administration, is forgivable or insignificant or doesn't particularly matter. And it really flies in the face of, um, you know, decades of U.S. rhetoric on human rights, and especially the message the Biden administration is trying to put out right now uh, on human rights and, you know, the support for the supposed liberal international order. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the Biden administration is really pushing this idea that, you know, human rights matter. This has to be part of the international conversation. Uh, and yet, you know, if I'm a foreign country uh, seeing, you know, this appointment, I would be like, how can how can I take your talk of human rights seriously when you know you have Elliot Abrams getting an appointment like this? Yeah, it's really really an astonishing own goal in that regard. But it's it's not the first time, even in the last few months, that the Biden administration has chosen to do something very much like this. Um, back in I think it was May or maybe early June, um, Tony Blinken 
went to Henry Kissinger's 100th birthday party, um, you know, never really gave was forced to account in detail for for why he was there or, you know, the ramifications of that. But this is the secretary of state going and celebrating an American former official who is, uh, it's safe to say, singularly uh, emblematic of the abuse of American power, of atrocities uh, committed in pursuit of U.S. hegemony. And it really, um, it really, like you said, would give a, a perfect rationale for anyone who's looking to dismiss the Biden administration's human rights rhetoric. I mean, there's other there's other stuff that they've done that might be more consequential or that the U.S. has done over the years in shaping an environment where at least most countries uh, in the global south, you know, outside of North America and Europe don't really buy uh, the U.S. framing that we are this power that upholds a rules-based liberal international order that just wants to maintain human rights. Um, but this is just, you know, adding yet more uh, fuel to that argument and, and really it what's What's strange about it is is I don't see what possible advantage um, the Biden administration as a whole or individuals like Tony Blinken get from choosing to go out and publicly embrace these people. Um, it just seems like something if you're trying to establish credibility and they speak about the need to be humble about our record and the mistakes we've made, uh, and then they turn around and do stuff that completely undermines it. I think the only way to really explain it is that um, they so deeply buy into narratives of American exceptionalism uh, that they consider Kissinger and Abrams' actions to be something other than criminal. Uh, I would say, based on the rhetoric you typically see, the way the way the more liberal-minded people rationalize this stuff, and they'll apply it to something like the Iraq War too, uh, is to say it was a mistake. We had good intentions, but now we know it was an error. Uh, but it does not say anything fundamentally about who we are or about you know the people who carried out these actions because they had the best intentions. They just went too far. And they made mistakes. And I, you know, without knowing, you know, the hearts and minds of people like Antony Blinken, I would suppose that the rationale is something like that. When it comes to that rationale or just this this thinking of the foreign policy blob in general, this sort of, um, you know, let bygones be bygones. You know, we can forgive people like Elliot Abrams or Kissinger for that. It was just mistakes. How does that affect our ability to work with other countries. Um, I know one of your chief areas of study is uh, U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, but like, th does this have a real policy effect in the sense of, um, you know, does the way the, the foreign policy blob think thinks about these things make it harder for us to reset relations with, say, like Lula da Silva in Brazil or, you know, any other number of countries that look at this and will say, well, how can we take your human rights rhetoric seriously? Yeah, I think it absolutely um, hinders 
the most effective possible relations uh, with with many countries and leaders. I mean, someone like Lula certainly is well versed in the history of um, U.S. actions in Latin America. Um, I mean, this is someone who was a victim of it. Uh, his country was under U.S. backed military dictatorship. He was a union leader who faced repression from the military government. Um, his successor, Dilma Rousseff, who was, you know, herself later pushed out um, in a uh, what's fairly characterized as a U.S. supported kind of judicial coup, um, she was tortured by the military regime. So you can't really turn to someone like that and downplay the significance of those actions. And and the more you you do it, the more you suggest, you know, that the more you demonstrate that you do not appreciate how much this this stuff matters, um, you know, how much it's shaped U.S. relations with with the region, the less credible you are. Um, yeah, I, I was just going to add to that. The reason I mentioned Lula specifically was and I know other people have, at Responsible Statecraft have written about this. You know, I think there's been a window where, you know, after Trump, there's this hope that maybe uh we could reset relations with Brazil after Lula got in power. Um, but I think there's still a, a, a distrust that exists and not without reason when it comes to Latin American countries. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, and and you bring up a good point there. I think the Biden administration, um, to their credit, they made it very clear in the Brazilian, um, in the run up to the Brazilian election and the immediate aftermath that the U.S. was not going to abide by um, some kind of effort on on behalf of Bolsonaro to overturn the election, you know, by claiming, um, you know, some baseless mass voter fraud allegation or by trying to call in the military to prevent a transition of power. And it was, uh, I think, a kind of significant event in the recent history of um, U.S. Latin American relations, um, because you know, oddly enough, I, some sort of Biden uh, supporter types in the U.S. I saw trying to downplay this, like suggesting that um, American meddling in Latin American democracy is really just a 20th century thing, and where have you been the last 20 years? But you know mm -hmm. the. The Clinton State Department was central in in ratifying uh, a coup that took place in Honduras in 2009, essentially choosing to legitimize that. Um, as I said before, alluded to the Lava Jato um, operation that led to Lula's imprisonment and Dilma Rousseff's ouster um, was backed by the U.S. Um, and, you know, at the time was touted as this great anti-corruption thing that was was purging um, sprawling corruption uh, from the Brazilian state, but turned out pretty much to be um, an effort of right-wing prosecutors and judges to push the uh, Workers' Party out of power there. Um, so a significant a significant change in posture to start uh, the to start Lula's presidency in Brazil, but. Uh, you know, they've, I think, not completely squandered that. There will be areas where the U.S. and Lula are able to work together. 
But at least on foreign policy, I think if anyone thought that Lula would align with the Biden program of um, kind of restoring U.S. Uh, liberal global hegemony and uh, pushing this democracies versus autocracies competition that's centered on China, um, you know, does, didn't really know Lula, didn't really know, um, you know, the history of his last administration and his very independent streak on foreign policy. And really, if the Biden administration wanted to bring uh, Brazil on board with its foreign policy program, it would have to uh, both show more recognition of our past errors, as as we were talking about before, but also ad- adopt a program that is much more humble, much more multilateral, um, and I think willing to seed influence on the international stage uh, to other countries in a more sort of democratic manner rather than insisting on continued uh, U.S. and Western hegemony, claiming that this is in the best interest of everyone. With regards to Ellie Abrams and Iran-Contra, I feel like at least for younger audiences or people my age, millennials, um, you know, we hear Iran-Contra and I think a lot of people just hear that term, sort of like how we hear Watergate, but we don't know the specifics. And I'm not expecting you to give a, um, you know, a, a historical dissertation here about Iran-Contra, but can you talk about the basics of Iran-Contra and its significance and how it has sort of stayed with us and lingered all these years on? Yeah. Um, so basically this began when the Sandinistas who were a sort of broad-based, certainly leftist, but not um, uniformly or even dominantly communist um, from the beginning, overthrew the U.S.-backed dictatorship of Anastasio Somoza. Uh, And this happened around the time of the transition from the Carter to the Reagan administration. Uh, And when the Reagan administration got in, they obviously were not happy with this, uh, you know, left-wing social reformer administration taking over in Nicaragua. They saw it as uh, inevitably a Soviet satellite, a foothold for Soviet power in our, you know, quote-unquote backyard, um, and they set about trying to undermine the new government um, and. The forces that became available to do that, uh, what became known as the Contras, at least initially, largely were um, soldiers from the former National Guard, that is Somoza's army, and uh, officials from his administration. Uh, But because Democrats in Congress um, would not fund a U.S. support for the Contras. They would not provide the necessary arms and um, and funds to, to back the Contras. Uh, the Reagan administration set about finding alternative sources for uh, money and weapons to circumvent Congress, uh, but they also had to keep it secret that they were doing this because they had been, you know, they, it was illegal. They were not allowed. 
Um, so that's where the Iran part comes in, um, because some of those funds came from uh, funneling illegally funneling weapons to Iran and then funneling the cash to the Contras. But there was also a significant kind of private fundraising effort that existed. Um, Abrams specifically had a kind of strange role in this scheme to raise funds from the Sultan of Brunei uh, to transfer to the Contras. He um, he attended a clandestine meeting in, in London, I believe, under the codename Mr. Kenilworth. Uh, in which he was supposed to transfer a bank account number um, to Brunei in order to get this this donation and ended up giving them the wrong number um, and the money just got lost. So um, not a particularly shining uh, effort even for um, illegal malfeasance as that goes. But um, what in, in addition to that, I should say a lot of what the Reagan administration did around um, the Contras involved public propaganda efforts, domestic facing stuff, uh, the Office of Public Diplomacy, which uh, operated under Abrams control uh, and also under uh, an official named Otto Reich um, was tasked with um publishing kind of false reports to hype up the contras you know kind of exaggerate their their um you know moral standing and and courage to to uh smear the sandinistas as much as they could and also to um uh smear and discredit uh, U.S. journalists, human rights groups, basically anyone who was opposing their policy on Nicaragua and Central America or who was questioning, uh, you know, their narrative around uh, the Contras and Sandinistas. Um, and this was exposed, at least, you know, in part eventually because uh, an American pilot who was flying weapons to the Contras crashed um, and was captured Um and this ended up coming out kind of uh, piece by piece, just how extensively uh, the Reagan administration officials had been involved in in funding and supporting the Contras and creating a an international supply network to ensure they could fight. Because it's also worth saying um, they they didn't have much independent strength without uh, the U.S. and this this supply network that we created. And it's probably also important to say that, I mean, we could talk about Iran-Contra all day, but it's really only one part of the story of the Reagan administration in, you know, Latin America and especially Central America, right? Yeah. Um, now, in in El Salvador and Guatemala, uh, as we touched on earlier, you essentially had uh, cases where the Sandinista style revolution didn't happen. Uh, those sorts of forces, uh, comparable forces existed and uh, rose up against the, the governments there. I think it's important uh, context too to say these are all countries that had traditionally been dominated by, um, you know, colonial oligarchies up to that day, groups of uh 
extremely wealthy, um, much whiter than the general population uh, landholders who in different ways ruled um, pretty dictatorially. Um, and so I, I think you have cases of, of the famous Kennedy quote where he said, if you make peaceful revolution impossible, you make violent revolution inevitable. These oligarchies systemically uh, suppressed any kind of democratic expression, um, any uh, political liberty or economic rights for their majority populations. And consequently, you had situations where you had left-wing insurgencies um, in all of these countries. And in El Salvador and Guatemala, uh, where the governments and armies remained in control, the Reagan policy was to bolster them as much as possible um, with weapons and funds. Uh, and that required, to a large degree, papering over the sort of psychotically atrocious ways that these governments were fighting their insurgencies. I mean, they were essentially using death squads. Yes. Um, in both cases, um, you had a lot of the killing, a lot of the most heinous crimes were carried out by not the military proper, but these uh, death squads that operated in conjunction with the militaries of these countries and were supported by prominent people in society from uh, the oligarchies I, I have just described. And you have like very famous atrocities um, in, in all these cases. In El Salvador, uh, there was the assassination of uh, the Archbishop Oscar Romero. Uh, this was carried out um, the plot where the, the main figure in this in this killing was um, a far-right politician named Roberto de, de Obison, who, um, of course, Elliot Abrams pops up, uh, you know, trying to obscure his uh, Obison's, de Obison's responsibility in that. Um, but, you know, you have these murders of nuns, even American nuns who were doing missionary work in, in El Salvador. Uh, the Contras were frequently engaging in massacres of civilians. And, you know, there's some reason to believe, too, that this wasn't just independent action they were taking, but that, but you know, kind of some amount of violence against civilians was actually encouraged by the CIA handbooks that they were um, provided with, that it was a kind of tactical terror to create insecurity and fear in the population and uh, dis so distrust and dissatisfaction with the Sandinista government. But yeah, it was a very wide ranging um, policy of backing these dirty wars all around the region to suppress any kind of um, left wing revolutionary um, government coming to power or just even movement in society writ large all in the name, of course, of keeping these countries out of the Soviet sphere uh, in a region where the Soviets didn't really have much reach. Of course, it was always greatly exaggerated how close these movements were with the Soviet Union and, and you know, what their coming to power would mean uh, in terms of U.S.-Soviet competition.
I was going to ask about that because even to this day, I'll come across people that will say, uh, you know, well, it was all, you know, it may have been bad, but it, it was it was maybe necessary at the time because we had to fight the Soviets. It was the Cold War. And I just want you to delve into more why that's probably a very foolhardy way to think about these things. Yeah. Um, I think that for one thing, if you look at the record of um, you know, where these kinds of left-wing and reformist uh, movements come from and uh, the the trajectory that various ones have taken um, with res- regards to U.S. intervention and their relationships with the Soviet Union, you see a, a pattern in that, first of all, all of these movements tend to come about um, due to domestic repression, uh, a combination of long histories of exploitation by the ruling class of the country uh, in conjunction with U.S. capital, essentially. So uh, whether you look at Cuba or Guatemala uh, or I I was going to say not to interrupt you, but it's often Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think lost over when people talk about Cuba, you know, whatever you may think of Castro, what we have before Castro was, you know, the military dictatorship of General Batista. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think sometimes people almost gloss over a lot of history when talking about these things. Yeah. And, and of course, Batista was horrendously unpopular and the movement that overthrew him was very uh, broad based, supported by, you know, many segments of of Cuban society. Um, and we, you know, we created the context where something like that was going to happen by propping up people like Batista um, and by insisting on exorbitant privileges for American capital uh, in Latin America. Um, I mean, the the Cuban sugar economy was um, after the Spanish-American War when the U.S. kind of swooped in uh, right when Cuba really was on the verge of of already winning its independence from Spain, swooped in and said, uh, pushed Spain out, said, look, we've given you independence and uh, we're now, you know, through a process of interference going to take control over a large part of of your economy. And we're going to stifle uh, reform in the country as we we did in the 1930s uh, as well in a you know, episode that ended up leading to Batista's dictatorship. Um, but so you have this trajectory where where um, U.S. interference and economic exploitation in combination with uh, ruling class repression, unwillingness to reform or really give an inch of privilege uh, leads to upheaval and to reformist governments of various stripes coming to power um these kinds of movements can be anywhere between just kind of vaguely liberal social democratic to more communist leaning but kind of regardless of where they land on the spectrum the u.s response was to say these are communists these are crypto communists they're going to be you know a conduit for soviet influence and we have to push them out forcibly and in a case like guatemala in 1953 that led to a pretty moderate reformer being ousted from power um, in a really, you know, flagrant coup 
that was, of course, egged on by the United Fruit Company, notoriously. Um, and it led to decades of repressive government and eventually uh, genocide, where, you know, in the case of Guatemala, unlike some of its neighbors, uh, these civil wars are uh, have been characterized by by court rulings as um, actively genocidal in character. I, I was going to say, you even have Abrams, uh, you talk about how he praised a Guatemalan dictator who was later convicted of genocide, claiming that this dictator, uh, you know, uh, made considerable progress on human rights and attitudes towards the indigenous population. Yeah, uh, this was Efren Rios Mont, uh, who was a dictator of Guatemala for some time. And um, Abrams, this is a pretty consistent pattern with him vis-a-vis -vis these governments. Um, I think there's some reason to believe that on balance, Abrams did genuinely prefer that these governments be less atrocious than they were, that he pressed for them to um, adopt more civil practices uh, with their militaries uh, to punish people who really soldiers who who really um, committed the worst kinds of acts um, because it you know they're the way they were fighting these wars it was the brutality reaches a point of counter productivity right from the standpoint of a removed U.S. policymaker, you'd rather have your your sort of proxies on the ground uh, behaving more rationally and not turning the population against them by uh, you know acting like villains. Uh, but but what Abrams would do because you know he couldn't um, bear to see any of these governments actually cut off from support over their atrocities was he would just say, oh, they're improving. Uh, they're working on it. They're getting better. And in the case of Rios Mont, he said that about uh, and specifically praised the improvements and attitudes towards the indigenous population um, only for Rios Mont to later be convicted of of actually overseeing genocide against uh, a segment of Guatemala's indigenous population. So it's a, a pretty staggering kind of uh, claim to make about someone who would eventually be revealed um, as so far, so far the opposite of of what Abrams claimed. Just a few more things briefly here, if you have the time. Uh, one of the things that interests me about Abrams is, um, you know, really, he doesn't really uh, get justice for his involvement with Iran Contra in a way because he gets a pardon from H. W. Mm -hmm. Bush, and then you know. When talking about Iran Contra, he sort of is very, as you put it in the article, uh, self pitying. You know, calling the Iran Contra investigators miserable, filthy bastards, and bloodsuckers. Um, you know, it, it seems like he kind of, in a way, he got off pretty well. Yeah, he certainly did, and um, you know, to be fair, so did pretty much everyone involved. Um, but. You know, it really it really puts a lie to the things that people like Kelly Magsiman said when, you know, that he'd been held accountable. I mean, I think it's it's fair to say, as um, the investigative Alan uh, investigative journalist Alan Nairn once pointed out, and he was um, a major figure in documenting the crimes of U.S. policy in Central America, that in the first place, what Abrams got prosecuted for was 
like the least severe thing that he had actually done about the most kind of um just procedural kind um crime of it all like lying to congress instead of um you know the fact that he was abetting crimes against humanity covering up crimes against humanity it's really kind of um a relatively inconsequential thing that he actually was punished for uh, and then on top of that he you know his punishment was probation and community service that he never ended up serving uh but it it didn't stop him from writing this kind of ridiculous book uh called undue process uh i actually read it in the course of conducting research for my senior thesis which was on uh, the accountability or lack thereof of the us foreign policy elite and the whole thing is just kind of whining about um this supposedly undeserved prosecution and how bad it made him feel to get prosecuted how much it stressed him out and ruined his life for those um years that that this was going on um but you know he pretty it's, it's clearly almost does like not... he had the attitude of uh how dare you hold me accountable you know yeah exactly i mean he he pretty much makes it clear he doesn't think he did anything wrong that this was a witch hunt basically a sham uh he makes a lot of ridiculous claims in the book like that for most average americans the criminal justice system has all these protections and due process but for me and other like officials targeted for political reasons then uh we're susceptible to these sham prosecutions which really doesn't pass the sniff test when you when you think about how the criminal justice system has in fact worked for a lot of average americans and then in contrast what political officials have been able to get away with so last two things i wanted to cover here was uh just briefly i wanted to go back to venezuela for a second here and uh you know the attempted coup against uh maduro and how that sort of blew up in everyone's face uh can you just talk a little bit about that? Because that's when uh, Abrams was the special envoy. Yeah, so there's two attempts you can look at. Um, and I, you have to say in, in both cases, there isn't much to uh, tie Abrams specifically to these things. We don't really have declassifications yet uh, or the kinds of uh, investigations. This stuff takes longer to come out but uh clearly in the first instance the u.s supported the effort of juan guaido um uh, who was the uh head of the national assembly at the time of venezuela to simply declare himself the legitimate president um and that entailed mostly him making that declaration supporters rallying and just sort of hoping that the military would flip to his side and that didn't happen um you know you didn't have some kind of larger overt us uh forceful intervention to to facilitate that um which obviously made it more likely to fail and then there's this more even more shambolic thing that happened later where the us ex special forces teamed up with these uh venezuelan former military guys in exile in Colombia, and they had this harebrained plot to just kidnap Maduro and seize power and bring in the opposition. Uh, and, you know, it failed terribly. 
And the Trump administration denied any involvement in this. And as far as I know, you know, substantial involvement hasn't been proven. Um, it's, a, you know, kind of believable because the thing was just so stupid and, and you know, ill-fated that um, you would think that uh, U.S. officials would not want to get their hands in it. That said, we've done a lot of catastrophically stupid stuff before. But, you know, this was regime change policy under Trump and under Abrams. Uh, so whatever his specific uh, role was in any given incident, his mandate was essentially shepherding in regime change in Venezuela. And clearly that failed very badly. Now, uh, if I have the time, uh, there are a few more um, post Reagan um, incidents just in his record, which is a, a mix. I, of I would successful. love for you to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so obviously, Venezuela, you have failed regime change efforts um, in the Bush administration. Um, there is even a little more of that, which, again, you can't tie to Abrams as directly as you could the Central America uh, and Iran-Contra um, actions. But in in various cases, he's been named by journalists or researchers um, as a key figure. Uh, first, during the Chavez years. Yeah. Yes. So in Chavez specifically, um, there was a coup in, I, I think, um, 2002 coup attempt that briefly removed Chavez from power, um, only for him to be restored not very long after um, on the basis of popular support and um, support that he retained in the Venezuelan military. And this is something that at the time, um, the Guardian reported Abrams as having given kind of a nod to this coup plot. Um, he was also involved in the U.S. Uh, 2004 removal of Aristide in Haiti, uh, which then led to um, occupation of Haiti by the Marines for a brief time. Uh, but I think the most uh, interesting of these episodes is, as I mentioned in my article, the 2007 Gaza war between Fatah and Hamas, uh, which started with a ill-advised push by the Bush administration to um, force Fatah into holding elections that they were unprepared for. Uh, even then, um, Fatah, the party of Mahmoud Abbas, which controls the Palestinian Authority, is known for being corrupt, not very popular at all. Uh, so they weren't prepared to hold these elections. And when they did, Hamas, uh, the Islamist party, won a um, solid majority. And this caused a total freak out in the Bush administration, which had, had of course, pushed for the outcome. Um, but what they settled on eventually was that Abbas would um, dissolve the Palestinian parliament and essentially, you know, take um, full, you know, control, but that to suppress a armed backlash by Hamas, they would sort of do a preemptive military takeover of Gaza by 
Fatah forces led by um, Mohammed Dalan. Um, and they they carried this plan out. Uh, essentially, um, Fatah was Hamas made counter moves, preempted this this coup attempt and ended up pushing Fatah forces out of Gaza entirely. Uh, and that led us to the situation we have today where Hamas is in full control of Gaza and the PA and Fatah control the West Bank. So you have a sort of um, divided governance of what are supposed to be the uh, territories of Palestine. Um, and Abrams was again named as a crucial figure in all these events from pushing for, for the elections to specifically pushing for this coup as well. Um, and it really was a, a disastrous outcome for what U.S. policy was supposed to be. I was uh, going to say this is a, this is like a crash course and why you use that term for your uh, the undergraduate thesis you mentioned. You call these people the catastrophe artists. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, it it looks like a complete disaster. Um, there's some some questions raised, I think, if you look at what Abrams' position actually is vis-a-vis Israel-Palestine. This is not someone who's interested in a successful peace process, really. Um, you know, he's been aligned with, um, friendly with Netanyahu since the late 80s has been a, a crucial figure as as my colleague Jim Loeb described to me in aligning US foreign policy with that of of the Israeli Likud vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Middle East um and and really um the outcome of this failed coup attempt uh well I don't think there's enough evidence to say you know Abrams or anyone else wanted Hamas to end up in full control of Gaza and divided Palestinian government. But in the sense that it made any kind of peace process just that much harder and, you know, is now consistently used as an argument to take the onus off of Israel to do anything because you, you know, have Hamas in control and you, uh, you know, can't deal with them. Um supposedly that that this is just yet another reason to say um Israel shouldn't have to do anything proactive on the on the peace process and um you know to deflect any kind of pressure on that front so you know while there's no there's no real way to argue no direct evidence that they wanted this outcome in a way it ended up suiting their needs pretty well Last thing I wanted to talk about, and I, I guess I can combine the two areas that I wanted to get into here, was, um, you know, I, I don't see as many people use the term neocon as much anymore. And in fact, I've been told, you know, why do you still talk with the neocons? You know, that's the thing of the Bush years. But I look at Abrams. I mean, Abrams, I think, is, you know, very much a neocon. The neocons really haven't left us, um, even though I think some people would try to say they have. And uh, also, they've been kind of unaccountable for everything that has happened at least since the Iraq war. Uh, so I guess my question is, what do you think the future is when it comes to neoconservatism? Uh, because it seems like they're still around. And also, uh, why are these sort of figures like Abrams and other neocons uh, never held to account? That's a great question. I think um, as a specific 
political configuration that was a product of a moment in time in terms of the late Cold War and the unipolar moment and this, um, you know, intellectual movement of people who migrated from the right wing of the Democratic Party under figures like Scoop Jackson to the uh, Reaganite Republican camp uh, out of their conviction, um, their support for a highly activist foreign policy that essentially sought to take um, liberal hegemony to its maximum ends and, and, and consolidate a U.S. dominated world order. The sort of Robert um, and, Kagan philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but specifically, you know, the the way the movement was aligned with the Republican Party and aligned with social conservatism. Um, in that sense, it is dead now, I think. You don't really have a coherent neocon movement anymore because people, you know, the rise of Trump effectively did this. It sent people scurrying in different directions. You have the ones who basically became Democrats like Jennifer Rubin, or uh, I think you could say that fairly of Max Boot. You have ones who became never Trump Republicans and remain somewhat in the wilderness of their party, you know, hoping that Nikki Haley will somehow become the next nominee. Or you have people um, like Abrams who have kind of studiously stayed in the good graces of the Republican Party um, and who will, you know, continue to jump back into government when they can and continue to press a sort of neoconservative line, even um, under a president like Trump, who has expressed, you know, um, in his very inconsistent way, but uh, has expressed a fair amount of hostility over the years to uh, the greater, the broader neocon worldview. So as in a sense, the movement is gone, but the kind of the individuals remain in many cases. Well, they and remain and they're sort of dispersed and can kind of yeah. influence different uh, political factions. Their, their foreign policy mindset uh, still remains. And I think the U.S. is is still somewhat chastened by the Iraq war and war on terror, at least from those specific kinds of actions. I think uh, there currently isn't stomach to do like a big uh, ground invasion of any country kind of regime change. Um, but the, you know, some of the basic tenets of neoconservatism of believing that the, the U S has this mission of, uh, fighting for democracy around the world against the you know the forces of dictatorship and evil um, is still the kind of predominant view of most of the U.S. Uh, foreign policy establishment, and it's certainly been been bolstered by uh, the war in Ukraine. I think to an extent that has um, fostered some delusions, perhaps about the. Vi continued viability of uh, American global hegemony um, and perhaps continued interest in a project like that from from other countries. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a hard question to deal with because because like I, I'm saying, neoconservatism uh, has in some ways passed from the stage, but 
but both its figures and its um, core ideological tenets remain very relevant and predominant. So it continues to be important to understand and to talk about. I think it's helpful to try to break down the distinctions between neoconservatism and sort of liberal primacy or, or liberal hegemony as favored by the Biden administration. Um, but there are also, you know, extensive overlap in those two. There's extensive overlap in those two projects. But uh, just to address the question of accountability, um, I think it's a career like Abrams is really emblematic. Um, I mean, anyone who has actually faced accountability in the U.S. foreign policy establishment, it tends to be for sort of procedural crimes, for lying to Congress or, um, you know, withholding information, cover-ups, kinds of uh, offenses against other members of the political elite, you could frame it. Um, Abrams, I mean, if you want to look at times he's been censured by his colleagues, uh, he's had a fellowship at CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, for quite some time now. Um, and Richard Haas, the outgoing president there, um, supposedly has been a big advocate for Abrams, bringing him on and defending him against members who uh, really pushed back um, on his inclusion in the organization because of his record. But uh, Haas and CFR did step up to chastise Abrams uh, when uh, Abrams came out after Obama nominated uh, former Senator Chuck Hagel to uh, the DOD, Abrams came out and you know implied that Hagel was an anti anti semite. Said he had some kind of problem with the Jews because um, I believe that was because he had made some statements critical of Israel and Israeli policy. Uh, and in that case, they saw fit to uh, chastise Elliot Abrams. And you know I think it's kind of fitting that the one time he would draw rebuke is when he turned his sites uh, against a fellow member of the political elite and the foreign policy elite. But really, accountability is, uh, or impunity is the norm for these uh, people in this, in this arena. And I think uh, I spent a lot of time trying to understand why that is and how that operates. There's, um, you know, countless reasons you can point to for it from just the um, affinity these people have for one another, their tendency to stick by and defend one another, um, to just the general ideological conviction uh, that most people in the U.S. political elite have that America is the country that combats human rights abuses and war crimes, not the ones that we, not the one that commits them. And that when we do, it's a mistake. Uh, it's just an error. And we didn't really mean to. So you have a lot at work here, but the end result is always uh, that the people responsible get away with it. I, I wanted to just briefly uh, comment on something you said and maybe get your take on it, which is uh, you mentioned how uh, a lot of these neocon figures, or even, you know, not neocon, but just in support of sort of this U.S. liberal hegemony, uh, will talk about, 
you know, how everything is autocracy, autocracies versus democracies, and we're going against the dictators. At the same time, uh, a, a lot of these uh, sort of foreign policy figures that claim that's the ideological endgame uh, are very supportive of, um, you know, dictatorial governments. I mean, the U.S. has been very close with countries with a less than sterling track record on human rights, uh, such as Saudi Arabia. You know, now we're seeing Israel becoming more and more far right. And I don't really think the U.S.-Israel relationship has changed all that much um, under Biden. Uh, there may be slight signs of it, but but why is it that if if all of this comes down to autocracy versus democracy, why does the foreign policy establishment still support a lot of what I would call autocratic governments? Yeah, it's it's really remarkable, and it's you know it's it's something that has been a practice of U.S. foreign policy since the beginning of the Cold War um, to align with authoritarians and dictators against the then the Soviet Union. Now it's much more focused on China. Um, and but it, it operates remarkably smoothly for people. I mean, you would think that it would be more of a hiccup to go from talking about liberal international order and human rights to holding up Narendra Modi as, you know, an ally in the struggle against authoritarianism. But it it's very seems to be very smooth and easy for people. And um, some of it is just that we naturally play up the abuses of countries that we don't like because uh, we have geopolitical conflict with them uh, that, you know, come into more direct competition with us. Or, for or whatever it serves reason. our interests in some ways yeah. to maybe support a country like Saudi Arabia. But yeah, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you end up hearing a lot more about what China does than what um, BJP is doing in India. You hear more about um, repression in Iran than you do about Saudi Arabia. But then, you know, um, certainly the war in Yemen is something that's been covered, if not as much as it should be, um, enough that, you know, the American public is aware of it. They're aware of what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and consequently, I mean, you see in opinion polls, Saudi Arabia is not popular in the United States, um, but it remains. I mean, the, the Biden administration, I think, is kind of married to the old U.S.-Saudi relationship when it's clear. It, it seems that they're more attached to it even than than Saudi Arabia is, uh, where MBS has been pretty willing to kind of threaten the U.S. with serious, um, you know, dri driving up the price of oil to an extreme degree, kind of breaking the security for oil bargain that has existed for decades. Um, but I think, you know, some of this operates under the basic philosophy laid out by Gene Kirkpatrick, uh, a neoconservative who was a, an official in the uh, Reagan administration as well who made the distinction between so-called totalitarians and so-called authoritarians, uh, totalitarians basically being the worst of the worst who were repressive across every aspect of life. And authoritarians are, um, you know, bad, maybe they're oppressive, but they're not as bad and act. And they also are U.S. aligned and we can work with them 
And um, by working with authoritarians when necessary, we can defeat totalitarians. And then the process of democratization can take place, um, you know, once the big bad is is off the table and we have, you know, the uh, U.S. hegemony and liberal international order, then we can pressure those countries to democratize, which is kind of the mold taken from the end of the Cold War uh, when around the time or and and just after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, a lot of former repressive U.S. partners um, regimes fell apart and democratized, some of them under uh, significant U.S. pressure because we no longer had to make that bargain to fight an enemy. But now we're back to the point where we do, and it's going to lead to still more um still more bargains with with repressive governments um and you can see that ramping up now i don't know whether um u.s officials will be able to continue to square that circle uh why do you say that i think it's just increasingly uh uncredible or incredible to to most outside observers that um and, and i might maybe i'm over optimistic here in some way because obviously hypocrisy the, this specific hypocrisy hypocrisy has been sustainable for them for a long time but i think there's a number of factors um that undermine it from i i mean if you just look at american opinion surveys um younger generations are far less likely to um believe wholeheartedly in tenets of american exceptionalism which make this kind of rationalization much easier so if those trends hold and and they've persisted relatively durably with um you know millennials um hitting the kind of 40 and above range when you're supposed to start becoming more conservative and all that um but if that if that um endures then you're going to have a u.s public that is less inclined to believe these rationalizations i think that the global south is not a an audience that is particularly susceptible to this kind of democracies versus autocracies message that can pretty readily recount instances of u.s abuse um, and we'll see this message as hypocritical um i think and, and you know, the reason I, I qualify this as perhaps being over-optimistic, um, geopolitical competition can be a very powerful um, force in kind of resurrecting nationalist sentiment um, in, in a population. We've seen you, Americans- you sort of imply that in the article, by the way, when you talk yeah. about, you know, Biden and the Biden administration sort of having to deal with uh, China- and, you know, the return of great power competition that may be pushing the Biden administration into a different direction than what it may have initially stated uh, in, you know, 2020. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's it's hard to say at this point because we're really on the cusp. Uh, we're in a transitional stage of U.S. foreign policy still where um, there this competition and confrontation with china is nascent it hasn't really um 
re, it's yet to really reshape domestic politics and, and political opinion as it as it might. But um, I mean, we'll see if if this is something the American people are are going to get on board with. I mean, you've seen a really quick change in in attitudes towards China becoming much more negative. Um, and so I think um, Americans will be susceptible to uh, an anti-China message and, and already are. The question is whether this this uh, democracies versus autocracies narrative or the um, you know the the narrative of liberal hegemony really plays for people when it's been discredited. You know our rhetoric being so far divorced from our actions so many times. Uh, part of me just has to believe that there's a breaking point, and that also being in a more open information space. I mean, back when we toppled the government in Guatemala in 1953, you were just going to read a very U.S. government aligned account of those events in um, mainstream papers. Yeah, I, I was um, going to say, I mean, I, I find it amazing. When I was growing up, I didn't see so much reporting that was critical of, say, Saudi Arabia or a U.S. ally like Israel, whereas I see a lot more of that now. Um, and I think it's just that we're living in this you know, information age where you know, it's it's hard to keep that information suppressed in any way. Yeah. Uh, and just as a contrast to to the Guatemala uh, experience, if you look at what happened in in uh, Bolivia in 2019 and uh, the coup against uh, Evo Morales's party or the Puch or however you want to put it. Um, in real time, as that was happening, um, you know, I could follow on Twitter and see a counter narrative to what the Bolivian right wing and the OAS were saying about what was going on. And consequently, I think they failed to, um, you know, paper over and uh, successfully kind of um, stabilize the, the coup government or to keep it in power long term. Um, but that's just an isolated example. I don't think that we have um, you know, there by no means is the information environment we're in now um a you know, one that really encourages a broad optimism. Um, and it's very hard, I think, to establish solid counter narratives uh to, you know, in some instances, the US government uh, or mainstream narrative against things, but it's also very hard to just get um you know broad swaths of people to um swallow that or believe it as automatically as uh they once would have so it is a little harder to for um you know the government to carry out just blatantly hypocritical actions saying one thing and doing another without people noticing so in the long run we'll see whether this perspective holds um as i've put it you know the alternative is uh, to either accept a more humble foreign policy where our rhetoric and actions can be uh, aligned with one another to the greatest extent possible, or take the route that is, you know, somewhat modeled by Trump, uh, not that he, you know, didn't enjoy um, bashing enemies over human rights abuses whenever possible, but largely, you know, dropping more of the pretenses and the rhetoric about our liberal foreign policy and a rules-based international order and just kind of pursuing 
power more nakedly. Um, I think that may be the choice. We will see if that in fact comes to pass um, and and which choice is taken. But I I think it's just increasingly hard to believe the uh, liberal primacist narrative of American foreign policy and American power. Well, we'll end it on that. I want to thank you, Sam Frazier, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at um, at Sans Fraser. That is S A N S F R A S E R. Uh, you can see a lot of my work appears on Responsible Statecraft, the uh, Quincy Institute online magazine, uh, or just through other Quincy channels. That's the best way. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sam Frazier and that you'll check out his work at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.